3: Children of the Night, and welcome. If you're listening to this on release day, then happy Friday the 13th. The only Friday the 13th for this year, I might add, so you better make the most of it. For me, Friday the 13th is one of the few times a year I actually bother buying a lottery ticket. Strange, maybe, but I've only won any reasonable amount of money once even if it was just a couple hundred dollars, and it was from a ticket bought on Friday the 13th. Not sure what that says about me, but I hope you have your own Friday the 13th ritual, and may it bring you good luck. In addition to Friday the 13th, this weekend marks one of the most exciting and hair-raising times of year for those in the horror writing community. No, it's not Halloween in May. It's that delightfully freaky Fright Fest we know as StokerCon, a gathering of many of the most twisted minds in modern horror. If you're lucky enough to be attending in person this year, consider me incredibly jealous. It sounds like it's going to be one hell of an event. But if the last couple of years of virtual events have been any indication, those won't be anything to sneeze at, either, and should be a great way to tune in from a distance. If you didn't manage to get your tickets to either, keep your eyes on the StokerCon and Horror Writers Association social media accounts for updates and some delicious morsels of the terrors to come. And, of course, one of our personal favorite events of StokerCon has always been the Bram Stoker Awards. We have a pair of the nominees for short fiction in the queue that we'll be sharing with you in a couple of weeks. And who knows, maybe even the winner. So keep an ear out for that. While we're on the topic of delightfully dark short fiction, there's another project I'd like to bring your attention to. Our good friends at Dark Matter have put together what's shaping up to be a devilishly delightful volume of short horror fiction called Human Monsters. Not only do the tales, not to mention the cover art, look amazing, but there are several familiar names in the anthology, too. I'm really excited for this one. And, lo and behold, it looks like pre-orders for the paperback have just opened up you better believe I will be getting it on that. And if you'd like to do so as well, I highly suggest you do, you can earmark a copy of your own by clicking the link in the show notes. Lastly tonight, you didn't think I'd let you go a full episode without a reminder of our Flash Fiction contest, did you? Well, we're nearly halfway through, and there have been some delightfully dark treasures that have risen from the murky depths so far. Of course, we're greedy. So if you've been sitting around contemplating, should I, shouldn't I? The answer is yes, you should. Plumb those depths, dredge the seafloor. There are unknowable things we've yet to unleash, and it's up to you to send them our way. Plus, there could be $50 in it for you, not to mention publication on the show and some pretty serious bragging rights. TalesToTerrify.com slash FlashContest is where you'll find details as well as the form to submit your nautical masterpiece. Come on, what do you have to lose? Besides, maybe a piece of your soul, but let's be honest, you weren't really using that anyway. While you ponder that, how about we set the mood with a little dark fiction? Our first story for the evening comes from Sherry Shatsky. Sherry Shatsky writes wild words. Her work has appeared in a variety of journals, including Cowboy Jamboree, Wraparound South, Fictive Dream, Black Cackle at Entropy and Saw Palm, with found poetry at Heron Tree and Harpy Hybrid Review. Ms. Shatsky attended the University of Iowa Writers' Workshop Summer Session 2021 and was selected by the AWP Writer-to-Writer Mentorship Program as a Spring 2018 Mentee for Flash Fiction. Her micro, Hot Rot, was nominated by Splunk Flash for Best Microfiction 2022. Sherry calls Florida home and is a Tom Petty fan. Read more of her writing at SherryShatsky.com and find her on Twitter at Meme. Both have links in the show notes. Children of the night, join me for Sherry Shatsky's You Wait in the Dark, a Tales to Terrify original.
0: You don't like his hand at the small of your back, the trail of your spine to the split of your shoulders. You lie still, careful not to shrug him off. You recall the time you did. He choked you purple. You pretend sleep. You have an early meeting. He knows you do, and you know he's intent on waking you, working you sleepless. He owns you, he says. Like a damn suitcase. It's when his fingers still, you think about what will happen next. This won't end pretty. Whether you relent or refuse, he'll punch or bite or pinch so hidden no one on Zoom in the morning will ever see. A few will notice how tired you look. You will say the pandemic is getting to you, and they will smile and say okay with a wink emoji because you've been married less than two months and you've heard they hold hope for a Zoom baby shower in the new year. Your best work friend will private message you and ask if everything is really okay. You will rub the bruise behind your arm and respond yes. You are fine. You miss her and everyone else, that's all. You will think how much you love working in surgical sales, scalpels and the like, and how after work you hate to come home. Quick, you will click send. You hear him coming from the kitchen. He will stand creep close behind you and push the chair and your ribs tight against the desk, pinning you good. He'll lean over your shoulder and hand you a coffee, your Zoom screen full of his face when he says, Morning all. Everyone will morning back. All but your friend who will keep her eyes on barely visible you. The slight freeze of your hands, taking the coffee you later blame on glitchy Wi-Fi. Thank you. Your stuck self will say, and he will need your shoulders hard and deep, harder than your work friends can tell on a flat screen. Matching thumb bruises will ride your scapulas for a good week. You wait in the dark. His breathing deepens. Whiskey laced with opioids has that effect. You slow, go for your phone. You need the light to check his sleep, ready with an excuse if he's not out cold. Sorry, babe. Checking my alarm so not to miss my meeting in the morning. A soothe past any apeshit accusation of you calling guys at work while he sleeps. Crazy because he checks your phone on demand and installed a tracking app to know where you are every minute. You lean over him, backlit and steel ready. He grabs your throat, tries to grab. His hand won't close. You lean into the choke so he can get a good look. His thumb is missing, severed quick and clean. He recovers with his left and slams your head against the wall. You catch the sharp corner of the framed print from the Guggenheim, where he tricked you with too fast love, back when he had two thumbs. You think, breath-starved, how will you ever pass off wearing a turtleneck in August heat on Zoom tomorrow morning? Your brain floods white light. Maybe you will sign in with your profile photo of him and you and Poodle at the dog park. His precious pitbull Poodle. He feeds once every two days, sometimes three, to make her mean. She loves you more than he knows and somehow Poodle senses never to let on to her master. You will never use the photo on Zoom, no matter how bruised and beat up. You will lie, say the air conditioner is running too cold, or you aren't feeling well, and mention you might get tested for the virus. Anything to explain away the turtleneck. You need all eyes on you alive, only for an hour to remember what safe felt like. Poodle leaps hungry, ferocious on the bed, hungry for more than a thumb. You can't see her. You hear her the growling, the barking, him cursing the dog. You hear her pity dog jaws lock on the back of his neck. You hear the thrashing, the screaming. You roll off the bed retching. You drive yourself to the emergency room and lie about the marks on your neck. The doctor will say you were lucky, bondage can kill, and hand you a pamphlet on domestic abuse resources. You notice the scalpels on the instrument tray are not the brand you sell and give the doctor the sample you carry in your bag. You usually have two with you. You share the new contact at the morning Zoom but tell the team the doctor is a vet, Poodle's vet. You keep your business private. Your best work friend messages you, Poor Poodle, how is she really? You adjust your summer scarf and reply, She's okay. Something she ate, maybe. Something gone bad. You can't be sure.
3: That was Sherry Shatsky's You Wait in the Dark, as read by Kat Woodford. Kat is an ER nurse and educator in Northern Maryland, where she lives with her husband, stepson, Kat Stinky, and dog, Bark W. Griswold. She loves all things horror and says the things she has read and watched are nothing compared to the horrors she has seen in real life. When she's not working in a hospital or voice acting, you can find Kat sailing with her family or riding motorcycles with her husband. Thank you, Kat.
0: A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may
2: be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week.
0: Individual results may vary.
3: Our second tale tonight is from Ed Ahern. Ed Ahern resumed writing after 40-odd years in foreign intelligence and international sales. He's had 150 stories and poems published so far, and three books. Capricious Visions from Gnome on Pig Press is his collected fantasy and science fiction stories, The Witch Made Me Do It is his collected folk and fairy tales from Gypsy Shadow Press, and The Witch's Bane, a horror mystery novella, was published by World Castle Publishing. Several of his folk and fairy tales are available through Audible and the New York Public Library. He's currently writing a thriller-slash-fantasy novel tentatively called The Rule of Chaos. Ed's poems have been published in more than 60 magazines and anthologies, and a chapbook is available for publication. He works the other side of writing at Bewildering Stories, where he sits on the review board and manages a posse of five review editors. A fair sampling of his work is available on the author's page at Bewildering Stories. Listen with me, children of the night, to Ed Ahern's The Dog Walkers, first published in Night Terrors, Volume 18, September 2021.
1: Several people told me it must have come down from the woods after the brutal cold that killed off the deer. Some said it was a feral dog. Whatever it was, something was attacking town dogs when they walked out at night with their owners. Jeb Haskins was the first in a snow-free January night circling the block with his cockapoo about 10 in the evening, as Jeb told me. Fritzy had just done her business, and I was bending down to pick up her poop. This animal blur ran behind me, grabbed Fritzy, and pulled the leash right out of my hand. Fritzy screamed. My God, it was awful to hear her scream like that. I fell over, and by the time I looked up, she was gone, leash and all. Did you notice anything else? Nah, I got to my feet, took out my cell, and hit 911. The cops were there in five minutes, but they never found my dog. Animal Control told them there were no reports of loose or prowling animals. Fairfief is a doggy town, with every fourth family owning one. The rules are strict. Licenses, rabies shots, leash law, poopy-scoopy, the works. Neighbors learn the dogs' names before they ask what the owners are called. So they were shocked when Danielle Crichton's pit bull was taken next. She cried when she told me. And I... Went out around eight that evening after the snow stopped. This thing charged us and bit Roscoe in the neck. He tried to bite it back, but it shook Roscoe like a puppet. I could still hear his neck snap. The thing was patchy gray brown, four legs big, heavier than me, dead black eyes. No, it didn't attack me, ignored me, picked up Roscoe in its jaws and carried him right off. And Roscoe was 50 pounds. I was screaming, shaking so bad I couldn't move. That's where Jim found me. He called the cops. Oh, and it stank really bad, worse than skunk. Twice was often enough for the police to put on two extra patrols and the first select person to issue a warning to the residence, pretty much ignored, until after the third attack. George Benson had begun carrying a thick blackthorn cane with him on his night walks with his dog. The short-haired pointer was nimble quick, just quick enough, according to George, that it dodged the animal's first lunge. I swung the cane with my off hand, caught the thing flat on its back. It spun and bit into my right wrist, crunching bone. I yelled, okay, I screamed. But held on to Fritz's leash, the animal bit into Fritz's back and broke it. It dragged me three yards before I knew enough to drop the leash. My wrist has to be fused. My fingers are clawed. I can't write with them anymore. The animal, it looks like like a coarse-haired, low-slung black panther. No ears. I don't remember any ears. And big, really big, and really smelly. Almost made me puke. A dog-owning cop volunteered to walk his animal through the afflicted town districts and did. Although he was in plain clothes, the only thing noticeable was passing motorists warning him to get his dog inside. People changed their habits as much as they could, walking their dogs in daylight. But canine bowels aren't ruled by clocks, and some residents still slipped out, trying to stick to well-lit streets. Alfred Newsom was reported to be Second Amendment self-reliant, refusing to be intimidated. Bozo, his Rottweiler, was trained as a guard dog, and he had a carry permit for the Glock holstered under his jacket. Neighbors said that Bozo was walked every night at 11 p.m., no matter what the weather, just before Alf went to bed. That Monday night, in lightly falling snow, Alf and Bozo apparently sortied as usual, They never returned. Another dog walker, early that next morning, found disturbed snow and two blood pools. Alf, dead, Glock still in hand, was centered in the second pool. The other blood pool held nothing. The dog walker also noticed the tracks of a large quadruped and said there was some kind of faint stink. A forensic expert from the state and veterinarian from Yale were called in. The blood patches were determined to be alfs and a canine presumed to be bozo. The third set of tracks from a large animal were shaped more like a bear than a wolf but left claw indentations like those of a cat. A tracking dog was brought in from the next town and sniffed the spoor but whined and refused to follow the scent away from the scene. The unknown tracks pointing back towards the woods Disappeared on a snow cleared street. Alf had been bitten only once, where his right shoulder joined his neck. The bite had been twisting, tearing muscle loose, and severing the carotid artery. He would have died in minutes. As all that was investigated, police brought in a hot air blower and cleared the ground around the attack. They found three shell casings from the Glock and 27 hair follicles. 26 of the follicles were determined to be human or canine. The 27th was closest genetically to a wolverine. That's when I was called in, one of few specialists besotted enough to devote themselves to the vanishing populations of northern latitude carnivores. It helped that I was also an animal tracker and live trapper. After conducting the string of interviews, I questioned the test results. No way. There hasn't been a Wolverine here since the ice ages, and the big male maxes out at 60 pounds, tops. It couldn't carry off a dog almost its own weight. Look, Mr. Singletary, we've triple-checked the testing. If it's not Wolverine, it's something close. Cook, the police chief, sounded both annoyed and worried. He really needed help. Sorry, it's just that except for the Northwest, wolverines don't exist in the lower 48 states. The sows dig into deep-packed snow to have their pups and nurture them. More snow than you'll ever get in Connecticut. Something else attacked several dogs and killed the resident. The chief looked worried. What's your initial guess? I try not to make them. But didn't it strike you as odd that it didn't try to eat any of the dog walkers? Yeah, it did. And so a first guess might be that it's a human that likes the taste of dog, but doesn't want to become a cannibal. Chief Cook snorted. The bites, the animal shape I know, Chief, it's weak. It also doesn't jibe with the four-legged tracks leaving the last killing. A human wouldn't be able to go into that stance and drag off a 50-pound dog in its teeth. At least not very far. I've never encountered an animal, wolverine, bear, or wolf with these behaviors. So, what does a wolverine do? They're fond of carrion. It's a lot easier to catch. And they're never found in human settlements. They're aggressively solitary. I had a thought. When does your dog pound put down their unadopted dogs? No idea. Let's find out. Once we've got a dead dog, we'll let it rot for a couple of days, then put it out in one of your neighborhoods. The neighbors wouldn't tolerate it. I think they might. If they think, it'll keep their dogs safer. Assign one of your officers to me. He can make sure I don't break any rules and provide daily reports. Not sure I have anybody left. Let me see what I can do. He was a she, Officer Thelma Friedrichsen, 25-year veteran of the force, desk job until her retirement at the end of the year. She used a cane, stumping into my workspace. When I raised an eyebrow, her lips puckered. Don't call me Thelma. I go by crash. I re-raised the eyebrow. It was a traffic detail. I was waving traffic around a stalled car when a panel truck smacked into my left leg. I got a limp and a bunch of money from his insurance company. I'd rather have the leg back. I nodded. Appreciate the help. Do you like dogs? Never owned one, so I never bonded. That's good. We may have to kill a couple of them. I'll leave that to you. We smiled at each other. Crash had trimmed back fingernails, wore no jewelry, had short hair and almost no makeup. Except for the gimpy legs, she looked pretty buff. I liked her, although my suspicion was that she might not be all that fond of men. If it's a consolation, there won't be much paperwork, just what the chief insists you put in. She smiled again. So what's first? First, for you, is easy. You get to sit in the squad car and listen to me climbing through deadfalls. The smile disappeared. Because you don't think I can handle the trick? Nah because I know what I'm looking for. You've got city eyes. I'm looking for scat, disturbed earth, game trails, that kind of stuff. But if I break a leg, you get to haul me out. Okay, then. Where do we start? I've been over the town maps. A lot of the wooded areas are nature-trailed, which means lots of people and dogs, which means no self-respecting predator is going to take up residence, we're checking out the gnarly bits, the densely overgrown sides of hills and ravines, the back end of the town dump, and I need to do it for two towns. The critter doesn't know about the town line between Fairfief and Westpost. You are right, you should do that. Like I said, Owen, oh, and we spend a few nights sitting Shiva on a dead dog. Ready? We spent the next week of alternate daylight hours with me picking up ticks and burrs and Thelma playing phone games while listening to me grunt on the walkie-talkie. I found trace of half a dozen coyotes and five times that many deer. We spent the alternate nights with an increasingly stinky dog carcass. I carried a dart gun with enough happy juice to knock out a grizzly. The first night, I thought I sensed motion in the darkness outside the streetlights, But when I checked, there were no tracks, just footprints in the snow. The next dog watches were even quieter. The chief again questioned if I was worth my fee. The day after I finished round one, another dog was taken. Robbie Benson, a teenager, bribed to walk a neighbor's dog after dark, saw something rushing at him and threw the leash at it. No way I was getting mangled. Not for 20 bucks a walk. It could have the dog. He was untouched, but had only a fuzzy recollection of what had scooped up the bichon Frisé. When I pressed him, he admitted he'd been open-air toking when the attack happened. So useless, except that he remembered the rank smell, and that gave me my next idea. I spent $5,000 of the town money on overnight shipments of smells, bear, wolf, wolverine, both anal glands and urine— then I brought in Danielle, George, and Robbie and had them separately go through sniff tests. Every one of them said the smell was closest to Wolverine, which was, of course, impossible. Impossible, which forced me back to a place I didn't want to go. I got out of our car, walked fast enough away that Crash couldn't hear me, and dialed a number from memory to Rankin Inlet in none of it, He picked up on the second ring. Hello, Frank. Creepy. He always knew it was me before I told him. Hello, Jordan. Jordan Aglacark was an Inuit shaman, although he despised that term. You're calling me for the advice you still don't believe in? I am Jordan. But first, you are well? Your family also? Jordan laughed, the throaty noise almost shaking my cell phone. I am. Thank you. And you remember your manners only when you are in serious trouble. Tell me what is happening. I did in great chunks of unfiltered detail. I wanted his take on the known facts, not my half-assed assumptions. There was silence for a couple of minutes before he spoke. Give back whatever money you haven't already spent, Frank, and leave. Now. But the town... "'The windigo is not interested in fee, Frank, or a few pampered dogs. "'It restrains itself only briefly from man-flesh. "'That could be you, and you do not have the powers to combat it.' "'I'm not afraid of an animal, Jordan,' he sighed. "'What matter if this is a man behaving as an animal or an animal acting like a man? "'It is the same monster. "'If you must stay, do nothing.' hide until the warm months. It does not like to be hot, and it might leave on its own. But the Wolverine is just an avatar, or perhaps a suit made of Wolverine pelts. No Wolverine would live in man-country. Do you still have what I gave you? I do, in my suitcase. It does not serve to protect a suitcase. Wear it. Crash was staring at me from the squad car. My expression must have worried her. I put on my best casino face and listened while Jordan told me, in sing-song voice, about the Wendigo and what it was capable of doing. When we hung up, I shivered. I still couldn't believe in an implacable, insatiable, man-eating demon, but, like Jordan, I couldn't believe this was a Wolverine. When I got back into the car, Crash reached over and touched my arm. You look like an ex-wife was asking for more alimony. Almost as bad. I asked a guy for advice about our little problem and what he gave me I didn't like. And what was that? If I ever get drunk enough, I might tell you. Drive, please, while I try and think. Jordan had to be wrong. I'd already staked myself out with a dead dog and nothing had happened except except I hadn't been alone and hadn't been near a sturdy car with a witness who might be able to call it in. According to Jordan, the Windigo always carried off its prey, leaving no remains or evidence. If Jordan was right, I needed to be alone after dark, dog optional. But there'd been no threats, no malice shown me. I mentally dope-slapped myself Any threat would tip me off and hint at a man-like killer. Once Crash had dropped me at my motel room, I went online. It's possible but expensive to purchase silver bullets. For a little over $1,500, I was able to order 10 silver-slugged 38 rounds and book overnight delivery. No personal questions asked. There was no way the chief was going to pay, so I used a credit card. Then I tried to put together a logic chain, and after a couple of hours and a double hit on some rough-edged bourbon, I began to get workable ideas. I'd been granted computer access to town records and started there. Once I'd sifted things down to a half-dozen possibilities, I called in a favor at Homeland Security. Sam Frank Yeah, we were lucky on that one. Look, I need you to pull some info for me. My eyes only, so no record of blowback. Yeah, yeah, I know. Okay, here's what I need. Just before I went to bed, I rummaged through my suitcase and found the little deerskin pouch that Jordan had given me. I'd never opened it, but the contents rattled, so I was guessing it held tiny bones. Feeling stupid, I put it on. It took two more days to receive and winnow the information. Meanwhile, another dog was ripped loose from its owner, this time two blocks from my motel. And shortly after the 911 call afterward, I got a call of my own. My number was known only to the police department, so someone had gone to a fair amount of trouble to get it. The voice was masked. You've got questions about the dog killings. I've got answers. We need to meet alone. I knew enough to play along. Okay, when? Tomorrow night. Not good for me. A night later, on Friday. The longer you wait, the more dogs die. Can't be helped. Call me back Friday and tell me where to meet. The phone went dead. I immediately dialed Crash. I need you to do me a favor. You need to send a prowler car out tomorrow morning and pick up someone for a surprise interrogation. How do you know they'll be home? I'm guessing he's a night owl who doesn't much like bright days, and I need you to be behind the one-way glass when I talk to him. Okay, who is it? I told her and got a whistle in return. Are you going to explain that to me? Just a hunch. It'll come clear in the interview. Okay. The next morning, I was sitting in the interrogation room, wondering if I wasn't making a terminal mistake. Okay, Mr. Haskins, thank you for coming in. Not sure why I am here. Dog's been gone a long time now. He was dressed in floppy clothing that hid what I suspected was a meth-addict thin but stringy strong body. Yeah, about that. You apparently got the dog a few days before it was taken, from the pound. Pity, you barely had time to start to bond with it. Alf shifted slightly in his seat. Yeah, That was a shame, but it hurt less when I lost her. Yeah, we did some background checks on the people who've lost dogs. You moved in with the cold weather in November, a couple of months ago. His expression went from polite civil to sullen. So? Nothing. Trying to get away from those Canadian winters? You have something against Canadian winters. Me? Not at all. Spend most of my work life up there. But you're not quite Canadian, are you? Listed as First Nation. Which one? Ojibwe. That's what the paperwork shows. Funny enough, we check tribal records and they don't list you. We don't get enough government money to keep good records. Alf had extended his fingers over the edge of the table and onto the top. The nails were thick and furrowed, the fingers spatulate. They turned pale as he pressed them down. What's this about? I've told you all I know. Go catch that thing. I nodded. We're trying. Some funny things coming out of the investigation. Everyone else that had a dog taken told us about the rank smell that hit them, except for you, Mr. Haskins, except for you, Maybe all that cologne you wear kept you from smelling something else. Haskins sat wordlessly for half a minute. Then, since you seem to be done trying to intimidate me, I'll be leaving. But here's something to keep in mind. This animal, whatever it is, may just be waiting for the right human to attack and carry off. Someone worthy of its efforts. Bon chance, Mr. Singletary. Haskins walked out, and a few seconds later, Crash stumped in. What the hell, Frank? You are trying to make that skinny bastard the dog Napa? I remembered Jordan's comment that Wendigos were always gaunt, as if they could never eat enough, no matter how much they killed. But I couldn't tell Crash that. He's a loner, no family, some odd circumstances. Nah, I guess not. But he's as close as I've gotten. Pretty thin. You want a multiple beer dinner with me? Sure. You buying? Don't be stupid. You've got the expense account from the chief. Oh, yeah. I forgot. Like hell you did. Mulligans at 6.30. We held ourselves to four beers apiece, both drinking from the bottles. After the food, but before the third beer, we got personal. You married, Singletary? Was until six or seven years ago. I was away all the time on projects, she got lonesome, then ungot it with someone else, you? Different story, same result. He was nice, timid almost. Realized I liked living together, but not the man, not really, I set him free. I nodded, got anyone now? I did, but she moved out of town. I nodded again, good luck next round, which I ordered. By the end of round 4 I'd almost told Crash what I was going to do but I didn't want her at risk which was silly considering she could maybe outpunch me. We parted ways and I drove slowly back to my motel. The call came in just after I got into the room which made me think the motel had been watched. Singletary. I couldn't identify the masked voice as being Haskins but then I could do a decent job of hiding my vocal identity. Yeah. You still want to know what's going on? Yeah. West Post, 11 p.m., back lot of De Saint Tire. Be alone. I'll know if you're not. So I've heard. I'll be there. Whoever it was clicked off. If any of what Jordan told me was true, I was going against a creature faster, stronger, and more prescient than I was. And I had a mini bag of bones and untested silver bullets. Not fair. It took a while for me to unjangle my nerves, but I made it into sleep. The next morning, when Crash came by, I said, Listen, I've had something personal come up, so no dead dog detail tonight. She said nothing, which meant she knew my lie was bullshit. Then, okay, don't do anything stupid. The day passed in twinges, me mentally playing out all the ways things could go really wrong. Crash's body language said she noticed cops, for all their hard exterior, are good at reading moods. I reminded myself that animals sense both fear and confidence, and if this thing was as animal as Jordan predicted, I needed to keep both emotions uncensed. Successful hunters do that, holding mental position as a neutral observer until the instant of firing, and I did not want to be the creature losing. That night, as I approached the saintes I checked parked cars, looking for the one registered to Haskins, but it wasn't there, and it wasn't in the back parking lot either. Nothing was, except a dumpster and me and my rental. The one overhead light in the lot was out, and the night was overcast, leaving everything in heavy shadow. I got out of the car and stood in the middle of the lot, giving myself as much open space as possible. The 38 Special was palmed in my right hand, There was a light breeze from the north, and I put my back to it, trusting my nose to tell me of an approach while keeping my eyes downward. According to Jordan, a wendigo could climb like a squirrel, but there was nothing for 40 yards but chain-link fencing, a dumpster, and the rear wall of DeSantis. The dumpster behind me smelled of burnt plastic and decomposing food. I waited 20 minutes without moving, just shifting my weight from foot to foot. If I moved— I'd lose focus. And that's when it almost got me. A gentle wind gust brought a stronger-than-usual aroma of dumpster. I turned my head enough to see a hairy thing with Haskins' face rushing at me. He was naked, and even in the dim light, I could see talons and predatory teeth. He hunched his back into a bow and dropped to all fours, bounding at me in ten-yard hops, As he came closer, the smell of wolverine took over from the aroma of rot. I pointed the thirty-eight. Stop! He did and stood erect. Except for his hairless face and hands, his body was draped with long, whispery fur. Finally, Singletary, you've come out of hiding. Make it worth all my effort. Your effort? There is no pleasure in killing fat, slow men. But to kill and eat another seasoned hunter, ah, that's rewarding. You think you're armed and protected? Fine, let's go through our moves. The animal in front of me steamed with sweat despite the 20-degree night. Its metabolism probably let it move half again faster than I could. If I shot at it where it was, I'd miss, and I had all of five shots. I fingered the deerskin pouch and it laughed. Its incisors and canines glinted. I couldn't tell if the claws and fangs were artificial or natural and realized it didn't matter. That T.P. Nostrum can't help you. I'm not human. Make your move or I will. Let's not dither. It bent into its curved-backed, four-legged stance, its head at the height of my ribcage. I kept my focus deliberately blank, putting my left foot forward and keeping the gun back a little, making it harder to swipe. I applied sudden trigger pressure without firing, and it didn't move, as if it could sense my foe intention. I took several slow steps toward it, giving myself a closer and bigger target but it backed off sinuously, maintaining the distance. When it had been Haskins, it had been right-handed, and I took a full step to my right, toward his hopefully weaker side. It smiled. How I love the nuances of our game. If the Windigo jumped, it would probably clear me and be able to attack while I was swinging around. If I gave it the first move, I was probably dead. I swung the gun slightly off target to my right, then swung it back as fast as I could, pulling off one shot. The sound was deafening in the empty lot. It jumped opposite my swing, the slug missing it by a couple of feet, then in the same move crouched lower and leaped at me. I jumped in at it and stabbed with the folding knife I'd kept in my left hand, trying like hell not to think about it. The knife poked into tough skin, not deep enough to be a serious wound, but maybe enough to be maddening. As the knife went in, the wendigo raked talons into my right forearm, tearing muscle and veins. The gun dropped onto the ground. I will taste you soon. It moved slowly in toward me. I shifted the knife so the tip pointed toward the ground, in faint hope that I could stab its shoulder or neck. And then the wendigo got shot. As the slug went into its side, it let out a shrill keen that hurt to hear, Not fair! Not right! It screamed, Ambush! But you had no knowledge. Just then another slug went into its leg. Not over, Singletary! Not over! I will meet you in the woods. Despite two slugs in its body, it pounced off, leaping over the cyclone fence without effort. I was holding my forearm tightly, trying to keep the blood loss down, when Crash drove into the lot. She got out of the car and hobbled over. What the hell, Singletary? Thank God you followed me. I'll tell you while you drive me to the ER. And did, sort of. I kept any supernatural conjectures to myself and described Haskins as a meth addict with a taste for dog. But all that hair, that crouch, those leaps. Amazing what a deranged guy can do with a costume and fake nails. And that's where it was left. They found some blood spatter at the scene that wasn't mine, but decided it was a contaminated sample with peculiar properties. Haskins never reappeared. They found long hairs in his house that tested close to Wolverine, put out an APB, and gradually forgot him. They were able to sew my arm back together, and it recovered most of its function. Crash was reassigned and began looking into a bar she could open after she retired. I called Jordan and told him what had happened. His tone was somber. The Windigo cannot be killed by lead slugs. It has an unfinished combat with you and will find you again. Perhaps here in our woods. Perhaps in another town in winter. You must prepare for a good death how can I prevent it? Move to Florida, perhaps. But even then, on a rare freezing day, I would hide in crowds.
3: That was Ed Ahern's The Dog Walkers, as read by Brian Rollins. Brian Rollins is a voice actor residing in Denver, Colorado. He's voiced over a dozen audiobooks, including the popular Glenn and Tyler series. Horror fans will want to check out his latest narration, Ancient Enemies, by Brian McKinley, a vampire political thriller. You can visit Brian at his website. TheVoicesInMyHead.com or on Twitter at VoicesOfBrian. Thank you, Brian. Well, children of the night, the hour is late and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and Paypal. Incredible fans like Kathy Robinson and Amanda Gottfried, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks, like ad-free and extended episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Now you can share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch. TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing, so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Meredith Borgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Join us again next week, as we unleash the monster within. With more Tales to Terrify.